Welcome to Disciple Dojo. You guys, I'm really excited. Today, I get to talk to someone who I've known for over 20 years and who is one of my closest and trusted friends and who also is an expert in a field that I am not trained in. But before we jump into that, let me address the elephant in the room. I have a bit of a shiner. Those of you who don't know, I am also a jiu-jitsu instructor and every now and then when you're training, knees come out of nowhere and connect with your cheekbone and your eye decides it's gonna show that off for all to see. So this is just a little souvenir I picked up in training when I was teaching class the other night. Just part of the job hazards, I guess. Now that that's out of the way, if you have not already, we would love for you to subscribe. This year, our goal is 20,000 subscribers by the end of the year. And to mark the halfway point at 10,000 subscribers, we are giving away an entire set of the Anchor Bible Dictionary. So when we hit 10,000, we're going to have a contest and one lucky viewer is going to end up with the Anchor Bible Dictionary set. You can look on Amazon and see how much that would cost you if you wanted to buy it for yourself. And as always, if you appreciate this ministry and you want to support the efforts of Disciple Dojo, two ways you can do that. One, you can check out our Disciple Dojo online store. You can pick up different t-shirt designs such as the one I'm wearing in this video, or you can check out other gifts we have available over there for your favorite jujitsu nerd, Bible nerd, theology nerd. Anything you buy there helps this channel. And what really helps us is monthly dojo donors. Everything we do, entirely donor funded. So if you would like to support the ministry of Disciple Dojo, we don't have a Patreon. We don't have tiered membership here on YouTube where you pay and have access to more material. All the material that we have at Disciple Dojo is free for everyone. We just trust that God will move people's hearts to give to this ministry if they find value in it. So if you do, check out the link in the description below for how you can become a Disciple Dojo donor at whatever amount per month you can afford. We really appreciate the support. Okay, sit back and enjoy this discussion with one of my best friends in the world, Olatunde Howard. We are here with one of my longtime friends from back when we were snot-nosed kids, college punks. <laughs> Olatunde Howard is here with us, and I, rather than me introducing, I would like for you to just tell the viewers watching uh, who you are and what you do. All right, so I am Olatunde Howard. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and the distinction in marriage and family therapy from other forms of therapy is that we are grounded in what's called systems theory. So systems theory assumes that mental health issues are contextual or they're relational. They're not just housed in the individual. So we see, we don't see a schizophrenic person, for example, we see the family as schizophrenic, right? And that's actually how systems theory came about. There was, there was a study on uh, a man who was schizophrenic and they observed that his symptoms either were gone or present whenever his mother was around, right? Hmm. So they brought the entire family in and just, they, that's how they came up with it. They realized that these symptoms are always within a context, always a response in some type of relationship. So what got me into this is that I think my whole life I've been looking for intimacy, but not finding it. 
And even even in high school, even in, at, at Central, I was looking for a wife. I was never really wanting to date, mm-hmm. but I never seen what it looked like, didn't know how to have it. And I think I used to always just kind of study relationships, which I think is the calling of a marriage and family therapist. Like you're always thinking about relationships, what makes them work, what doesn't make them work. And I just went through a series of of very bad breakups. Breakups used to hit me really hard. Mm. And the very worst one that I experienced derailed my life to the point where I was I was just kind of lost for a little while. I didn't know what God wanted me to do, where God wanted me to be. Ended up becoming an officer for 10 years, married my wife in that context, and I got really sick. And I couldn't work for a while. And my wife just said, well, you should really just consider being a marriage counselor because you're always doing that. Like people were always somehow for some reason coming to me about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so I prayed about it and I sensed this, that's what the spirit wanted me to do. But I was actually disappointed because at that point I wanted to write or do full-time ministry or mm-hmm. be a police officer or something. Cause I was going to either going to be a police officer. I was going to go into probations or be a writer. Mm-hmm. And so God opened the door for me to study marriage and family therapy and all of the questions I've had about relationships my whole life were like answered. Like I, fi- I, f- I felt like I finally knew, first of all, how to have intimacy myself and how to tell other people to have it. Because when I would study, if I learned the theory in school, I would come home and practice it. And if it didn't work, then I, I, don't, I don't use it. Like to this day, I don't use anything that didn't work from when I was in grad school, but if it worked, then I use it. So I think the the blessing that I'm experiencing is, I used to want a blueprint for intimacy. I used to want someone to tell me how to how to have it. And now I can say by the grace of God, I believe I actually know I can help people to have it. And so that's my journey in a nutshell. Yeah. And so let me let me unpack a few things. So when you talk about systems, say it again, systems theory, systems practice. Yeah, systems theory. Yeah. So <laughs> that's yeah. systems refers to family systems or communities yes. that somebody exists in. Absolutely. So, so according to the way we think about it, and, and there are different theories within systems theory. So, for example, there is a structural family therapy. This is by this, this, this man named Salvador Mnuchin, and he believes that the entire family is a system that is divided into subsystems, right? So you have the spousal subsystem, then you have the parental subsystem, and then you have the sibling subsystem. So according to him, a healthy family has clear boundaries between the systems, right? Unhealthy families are either enmeshed, the systems are blending, or they're disengaged, they're, they're, they're too disconnected. And though, and like you were just saying, you have the family system and then you have the external family systems and the societal systems. So yeah, that's how we, 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 we think in the, like even when I'm seeing an individual, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the individual in a relationship with someone. Like in scripture where, you know, Simon, son of John, like it's, it's exactly like that. We, we think of people, even when they're in the room by themselves, in the context of a relationship. Right. Because I guess, you know, even if somebody's not in a relationship or they're they're estranged from their family, you know, they don't have contact with their family, or maybe their family's all died, they still came from and were formed by that. So that would make sense that any view of intimacy, relationship, dynamics, relational dynamics that they have would be formed that way. Do you then, um, so how do you, well, there's a lot of questions I want to ask because I think it's interesting and curious. How do you work with someone who their family system is mm-hmm. not having it like they're not on board with any of it and don't have any desire to be part of any of this? And so you have this person wanting to address this hurt, this wound, this whatever, and their family is just like, you know, 
we see you, no part of this, we're not going to deal with you. What do you do there? So the idea is that because we are a part of a system, if you change one aspect of the system, you're going to change the system. Mm-hmm. So even if, if everybody's not there, it, it's, it's like the way that the way we look at it is you have two types of change. You have what's called first order change and second order change. First order change would be like changing the furniture around in your room. Mm-hmm. Second order change is like changing houses, mm-hmm. right? We're trying to get people to do second order change. So the idea is we think of people as in, in a dance. Everybody's in this dance, right? So instead of just changing the steps, we're changing the music, yeah. right? Okay. But if you have one person that does that, it's going to affect everybody else. So usually I have to give a warning if I'm seeing an individual. And, and I promise you, every individual that's coming in, even if they're coming in for anxiety or depression, we still we still view it as contextual. Mm-hmm. That the anxiety and the depression is a response to some type of relationship. And we're usually trying to find the relationship or relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the idea is that I usually give people the warning, things typically get worse before they get better when you come to therapy, mm-hmm. right? And, and this is what I mean. So I've had situations where let's say I have a couple comes in and the wife's like, oh, my husband's a pushover. He does not stand up for himself. I was like, you know, what do you think about that? He's like, well, what she said. It's like, all right, cool. I was like, so what do you want me to do? He, he, he just, he, you got to help him to stand up for himself. I was like, are you sure? Is that what you want? Yeah, that's what I want. You sure? Yes. Okay. So I started seeing him. And sure enough, we worked through some differentiation issues and, and autonomy issues. And he started standing up for himself. Uh-huh. Because that's what she said she wanted. That's what she yeah. said she wanted. Remember that? Yeah. So they used to have maybe two arguments a week. Now they're having five or six arguments a week. Right. Because he's standing up for himself. Right. Uh-huh. And then she's like, wait a minute. I don't know if I want this. Right. And that's the point. Like, okay, if he changes, now she's got to change. Mm-hmm. Because they were, what we look at is, in some way, she benefited from him not standing up for himself. Mm-hmm. Right. So now she's got to become the wife of a man who now stands up for himself, which means she's got to change. Mm-hmm. Now, notice, she came in telling me, fix him, all that you may. Fix him. Right. Right. But notice, it's going to impact her when he changes. So even if the whole system doesn't come in, one change in the system will will cause a ripple effect to to the extent when I do have family members that come in and they'll usually have this fix this person in the family would be right. Mm-hmm. That person is usually like, no, something's off in the family. Mm-hmm. And they're like the they're the ones that won't accept the status quo usually. Uh-huh. Right. So it's really interesting. But to, to answer your question, change one part of the system, you'll change the system. Yeah, that's encouraging, I think, to hear. I think that's encouraging for people because there's a lot of stigma. I mean, I address this in my own ministry and teaching. I'm very open about the importance of dealing with mental health, of destigmatizing things like depression, anxiety, any type of, of personality, uh, emotional issues. I think that, especially as Christians, because Christian, you know, the whole yeah. pray, it, pray it away, uh, just have more faith, just believe without addressing anything to me is um, it's, it's spiritual malpractice in light of what God has given and how he's called people like you to really actually engage in this ministry, even though what you do, you're a licensed therapist, but from a kingdom perspective, it's your ministry and he's called and gifted and equipped people like you. So it frustrates me whenever well-meaning pastors or Christians will just completely downplay all of that. Like, just take all that learning over centuries that God has equipped people to do and just flush it down the toilet and just tell them to pray more and read their Bible. 
and it yeah. drives me crazy. As someone who loves to teach people scripture and lead, get them hungry for scripture, scripture's not always the only avenue by which God heals people and restores people. He does it through the body. He does it through gifted people in the body, like yourself. And for viewers that don't know, um, you know, Olatunde and I, we've known each other for over 20 years. We actually went to high school together. We didn't know each other in high school. He was uh, my sister's grades. He was about two years ahead of me. And we met in college. He's been one of my best friends ever since. And Olatunde is who I go to when I have a thing that's weighing me down or, or hitting my soul. And I have very few people that I can really unpack it with. And I know that he's going to listen and reflect back to me in a way that will help it make sense to me. And that's something that is crucial in a good counselor and a good therapist is you're, you're guiding people and you've done it with me. Um, you, you guide your clients and the people you see mm -hmm. into truth by helping them see it, not yes. do this, do this, do this. Yeah. And it's so great because then we then we actually people learn if you get somebody like, OK, if I'm let's take it back to Bible nerd stuff, since this is Disciple Dojo channel and most people watching this are Bible nerds. If I tell somebody a fact of scripture, yeah. they may or may not remember it based on how interested they are in it or how charismatic I am in sharing it. But if I get them to find it in the text for themselves and they see, oh, Oh, wow. Genesis one really is laid out in three days that correspond to three other days with Sabbath underneath it all. And that's a beautiful pattern. And how did I ever miss? You know, it's like it becomes a part of their soul. It becomes a part of yeah. their entire outlook. And so you doing that in relational dynamics yes. is the same thing. And it really yes. makes brings about change. So that's what I want to kind of uh, that's to let the viewers know what we're doing, what, why I had you on and. And the value that I see, not just in your ministry personally, but in yeah. the field of what you do is yeah. super needed because some of the most dysfunctional families ever are in churches. And, you know, there's it's just part of living in a fallen world. And some of, you know, I mean, I'm a preacher's kid. Thankfully, our family is not the stereotypical preacher's family where the kids are buck wild and the parents are hypocritical. And, you know, I mean, that's just there's whole TV movies that could be written about that. Yeah. What are some things as in your professional experience in your ministry? Yeah. What are some things you've seen that I don't want to say it that are kind of like blaring warning lights like this relationship whether it's a family relationship with uh, like sibling or mother and, uh, parent and child or in particular romantic relationship marriage what are the biggest some of the biggest red flags that people may not even realize that they need to be the the check engine light of therapy, yes. so to speak, like when this goes off, you need to go see a specialist because something's wrong under the hood. So that's a wonderful question. So I think the most blaring one for me has to do with. I think relationships get derailed because people don't know what relationships are. To me, that's the biggest thing. Like when people come to me, it's amazing how we, we view relationships in a very passive, mystical, 
if it happens, it'll happen kind of way. So it's very, there, there tends to be this view that there's no, no rhyme or reason to relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And so, especially if I'm dealing with believers, I usually, even with unbelievers, I'll just, I quote scriptures directly to believers that come to me, but with unbelievers, I'll just say there's a wise saying, or I'll just, I'll just say it like that. Right. But the core for me is the verse, how can two walk together unless they agree? For me, that's the key to everything in the sense that I believe every relationship is fundamentally an agreement. Every relationship, God, people, you name it, right? And so typically when people come to me, either no agreement has been thought about or established. And, and you and I were talking earlier and you said something that that's, that, that's right in line with what I'm talking about. Most people don't go into relationships with any guidance whatsoever. So I'll, let's say I see somebody that's been married for five or 10 years. I'll say, hey, did you have any premarital counseling? Did you have any, it, did anything like that happen? Most of the time it hasn't. So usually I have to take them all the way back to the beginning, right? And so I usually do it in chapters. I'll say, okay, chapter one, how did you meet? Now, that sounds like a simple question. How did you meet? How did the relationship start? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I was like, you don't know how you met? It's like, you, you tell me you're the therapist. I was like, how am I gonna tell you? How am I gonna tell you? <laughs> Your relationship, man. I forgot. I forgot my crystal ball. But let me, you know, it's like they they yeah. kind of expect me to work with them in such a way, like they expect me to work with them with little to no information about who they are. They come and they'll have a problem. Say, well, let's go back to the beginning, and they typically cannot trace their beginning. You would be surprised. They cannot trace how they got together, why they got together. I think dating apps has made it even worse, where people just have no clue about how or why they got together. Right. So you have to start back there because and the other thing is with with systems theory, we take what's called a strengths or solution based focus, which is we typically believe that people have already experienced successful relationships on some level. Like if you've been together for five years, you had to do something to make it five years. So what I'm usually trying to get them to do is be aware of what they did to get to five years. Hmm. So the first glaring thing is a lack of awareness a lack of intentionality, a lack of agreement. So either they have no agreement whatsoever, or I come to find out that they have two totally different paradigms in terms of what a relationship is, two totally different paradigms in terms of the roles that they want to play in each other's lives. And so sometimes, unfortunately, people end up actually, because as, as, as a marriage family therapist, I'm not trying to keep anybody together or break them up. I'm just trying to help them to do whatever they're trying to do in a healthy way. Mm. So sometimes healthy means staying together. It might mean parting. But the biggest red flag is when when you have a complete sense of unintentionality, unawareness, a, a lack of agreement from the beginning, right? So mm-hmm. that would be the very first thing. And I, if you want, you want to ask me something about that, I can because I got some a couple of others. But what I do you think wanna, about that? Well, one one thing I want to ask you is, do you see that uh, more in either gender, in either sex? Is it something that men are more do more, or is women do it more, uh, or or do you not really see a breakdown along those? No, lines? it's equal. Okay. It's, it's totally, yeah, no clue. That, Cause that's no a stereotype. I, I get, that's like a stereotype. I could see, you know, the dumb dad stereotype of like, well, I don't know. I just showed up and we fell in love and blah, blah, blah. And the wife meanwhile knows every detail. And I mean, that's like a trope in TV and commercials and movies and stuff. Yeah. And, but what you're saying is now it's, it's intentionality is kind of across the board. Across the board. Yep. I, I think people just think if they just think, well, relationships are just kind of supposed to work. Mm-hmm. until they don't mm-hmm. right and then they come to me but it's it's really weird it's 
I don't know what they expect me to do. Like with with they, it's like they really expect me to make a lot of changes for them with little to no information, and it, it right. baffles me. Like asking them these kind of questions, they'll be like, "Oh, you're really putting me on the spot there. You're kind of it's like I'm taking like I'm taking a test." It's like no, I just want to know how your relationship started. Right. Right. So yeah, I, it's equal with men and women. Okay, yeah, I could see it. I mean, that makes sense. And from the people that I know that are in relationships or have been. Yeah. In, it sounds about right. So that's warning sign number one or red flag number one is just a lack of awareness about yes. intentionality, how the relationship started and, and what would be something else? What's another? We got to get into attachment theory. All right. So what is attachment theory? All right. So attachment theory suggests that from the time you born until you die, you need at least one secure attachment in your life. And that means somebody that's available, responsive and engaged. So you just you remember the question, are you there? Or A-R-E, available, responsive, and engaged. That means when you reach out to this person, that person's gonna reach back and you know it, okay? Now the key, James Michael, is that this is a need, according to attachment theory. This is not just a nice addition to your life. We need this like we need air, right? So according to attachment theory, there's no such thing as being codependent, needy, clinging. We, we were born through an intimate relationship. We come out of the womb needing it. And so from birth to about 11, your parents are your secure attachment, or at least they should be, right? Mm -hmm. So your parents provide you four things. Proximity management, that means you wanna be around them more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Thus they, they, they protect you from separation distress. They are your secure base. That means when you have a problem, you can go to them and they'll help you to solve it. And they are your safe haven. When you're hurting, you can go to them, they'll help. Around 12 or 13 ish, we're focusing on peers. So they don't need to be around parents as much, but they don't wanna to be too far away. 14 or 15 ish, we're almost totally focusing on peers, but they do want parents to help out and comfort them. Mm -hmm. 16, 17 ish, just be there to solve problems. When you move into the adult life, the romantic relationship takes over, mm -hmm. which is basically leaving father and mother, cleaving to a wife, two becoming one. The, mm -hmm. the, the romantic relationship with the marriage becomes the secure attachment, right? Now, with that as the background, you have three attachment styles. So you have the securely attached style. This is a person that is very comfortable with intimacy. This person can directly and explicitly express their feelings, needs, and wants, and they can elicit that from you. They're very comfortable with closeness. On one end of the spectrum, you have the anxious attachment style, which is most of the people that come to therapy, that's, that's who they are. Hmm. They very much want intimacy, but they don't know if they're going to get it. They're very uncertain. So they need a lot of reassurance, hmm. right? And they're the ones that will, they, they just think that they want the relationship more than the other person. Mm -hmm. Opposite end of the spectrum to the avoidant. This is the person, they want intimacy, but they tend to crave distance and autonomy. Now, for whatever reason, the anxious and the avoidant get together. Mm -hmm. They're consistently getting together. The anxious pursues the avoidant, the avoidant avoids, and it's like this pursued distance or pattern. Right. That is typically a red flag. Mm -hmm. If I get an anxious and an avoidant together, it can work, but it's going to be an uphill battle. And mo mm -hmm. most of the time, it's just going to create so much stress. According to the research, there's no significant difference between two securely attached people being together and a secure being with an anxious or secure being with an avoidant because the securely attached person will make the relationship secure, especially for the anxious attachment style. Mm -hmm. Because if the anxious is with the secure, the anxious is going to be like, well, I just want to make sure you want to be with me. The secure will be like, I will. I do want to be with you. Well, I just want to make sure I'm not getting your nerves. You don't. But the secure will just give the reassurance they need. They'll just mm -hmm. give it to them. The avoidant will be like, why are you so needy? Why are you so mm -hmm. clingy? 
man, how many times do I have to tell you, right? And so they, it's, and then the, they will avoid, right? So when I see those, I, I will educate them about attachment theory, especially if they're not, if they're not, if there's no momentum, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is counterintuitive to what people think I am. But what I try to do is I paint this picture. I say, okay, the securely attached person exists. So I say this, especially to the anxious, a person that can reassure you, a person that will be comfortable with closeness exists. So you have to make a choice. Do you want to, you want to wait and try to be with that person? Or do you want to be with this avoidant person where it's going to be difficult? It's going to be an uphill battle, hmm. but I, you know, I, I, I don't tell them which one to do, but that's the one that's a, if, if there's another red flag that's blaring is when you have the anxious and avoid it together. Mm. That's it. That's typically a, a, a bad mix. So then let me ask, how would somebody know if they're, if this is all new to them? Cause I've, I was for, it's a long time before I even learned what these styles were. You shared with me and somebody else had mentioned it before a friend of mine who had had a counseling degree. And I, so I, I they were on my radar, you know, I kind of knew what they were, but I never could explain it or lay it out. How does somebody know what they are on that spectrum? Just how would I know what style of attachment I have? Well, the quick answer is, what do you need? So with, with the anxious, if you need to constantly hear that the person wants to be with you, if you just need them to always, you, you, if you need a sense of consistency, predictability, you just kind of need to know that this person wants to be with you, that's anxious, right? Mm -hmm. The avoidant, it's, it's it, sometimes with the avoidant, the closer you get, they start to get kind of closeness makes them uncomfortable and they need space, mm -hmm. right? It's so the key is your response to intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. If you are very, very, very comfortable with intimacy, that's secure. Mm -hmm. If you want it really, really bad, but you don't know if you're going to get it, anxious. If you want it, but it makes you, 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 you feel like you need space, avoid it. And typically, the problem with anxious and avoided relationships is a lot of them start out long distance. And so it seems wonderful because the avoidant gets to go back to wherever right. they want to go and they come back. And it seems like everything's going well. It's only when they move in together or whatever that they find this out. I think another litmus test is the kind of response you get from the people that you're in a relationship with. So the difference between the secure and the other two is that the secure has all of their strengths, but none of their weaknesses. Meaning mm -hmm. the secure, the secure, if the secure needs reassurance, he or she would just say, I need to know that we're going to spend time together tonight. They'll just say it. Mm -hmm. The anxious won't just say that. They're like, well, you know, you know, I, I guess you don't want to be with me tonight. So I guess, I guess maybe I'll just, you know, they, they kind of fish around, you know, right. for the reassurance, right. but they won't just say, and the avoidant, the avoidance are the ones that just kind of ghost you. You just don't right. know what happened. Right. Right. Okay. So your comfort level with intimacy will tell you what style you're in. Mm. The responses that you get from others will also tell you, like when you directly express your feelings, needs, and wants to someone, their response will let you know what you have. Hmm. Right. So if you're talking to a secure, they they're very straightforward about that. Like they'll, they'll just ask you, hey, what do you need? You know, what do you want? You know, what, how can they'll, they'll just ask it and they'll just tell you what they need. That is the secure attachment style all day. Now, the thing is, the secure attachment style is not as exciting as the anxious and the avoidant. There's not there's no right. drama. with them, Right. You, <laughs> you know, you, you know, they're very consistent. Right. Yeah. But. For the for the anxious, that's a breath of fresh air. A lot of the, the anxious attachment styles that I come to, they've never experienced what I'm talking about, so they think I'm just creating this fairy tale. I was like, no, this is like, this is real. Mm. So, what what do you need? If you need reassurance, you're anxious. If you need space, avoid it. 
if you want intimacy and believe that you're going to get it, like the secure believes they're going to get it, mm. they, it's kind of given for them. That'll let you know. But there's also an assessment I give people because it comes from this book called Attached. Okay. And so you can go online to the Attached book and it will give you an assessment for yourself and for the person that you're with. Is it possible to, depending on who you're in a relationship with, that it switches or is it fixed? In other words, if you find yourself with somebody and you're like, I need space, but then you find yourself with somebody else and you're like, oh, I, I need to know that this person is interested. Is it is that possible or is that what's going on there? Now, it's not going to really switch. It's basically a pretty it's a pretty stable temperament. OK, but the way it's expressed is going to be expressed differently in different relationships. So like, like you just let's take what you just described. So if the secure is with an avoidant, then they're going to say, OK, I need more time with you mm-hmm. if they're with an anxious then they're going to say, hey, I, you know, I know you're not used to this, but everything's OK. Like they're going to respond differently. Right. OK. If an anxious is with a secure, they're going to usually be OK, really. Mm. If they're with an avoidant, all kinds of stress. Typically, you don't have two avoidance together because how would you have a relationship? Right. I've never encountered that. Mm. I've rarely encountered two anxious together. And they just typically both are both of them are just stressed out about the relationship. Right. Right. But they will probably work better than an anxious and avoidant. So I think the temperaments are pretty set. And remember, these aren't bad. Like the temperaments aren't bad. It's just it's a temperament. Yeah. There would just be a different response. So are those are two. <clears throat> are there any other major warning signs? Yeah. Behold, disaster imminent that you see? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Gottman Institute, which is which is founded by John Gottman. And he is like this relationship expert that marriage and family therapists, we totally just look up to him and refer to him. All right. So he's been studying relationships in what's called a love lab where he looks at he he focuses on the relationships that work and what makes them work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he has what's called the four horsemen of relationships, these four things that destroy relationships. Right. Okay. So you have criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling and contempt. OK, contempt that's the one that I look out for, like, because that destroys 99% of relationships. And it's basically this sense of enmity. Like when sometimes couples have this, they assume negative, negative intention from each other. Mm-hmm. Right. When that's there, I actually stop the session and I'll cycle educate them about what I just said. I'll just say, look, you know, I can't, you can't do couples therapy until you're a couple. That's what I typically say to them. And I say, basically, enemies don't communicate. They, 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 they can they can come to a truce or have a peace treaty, but they don't communicate. Like if you don't, you don't have any motivation to effectively communicate or resolve conflict with an enemy. Mm-hmm. So if I see enmity, like this assumption, that, and and sometimes people think they can come to therapy, James Michael, and just kind of mm-hmm. fight in front of me, and they will. Like they will just <laughs> fight, and they'll forget that I'm there, and I have to just like. That's the the third blaring red flag is if if there's this assumption of enmity, I have to stop everything uh-huh. and say, OK, before we do anything, we have to remove that assumption. Yeah, man, that just sets off all kinds of resonances in my head of the creation account um, <clears throat> where the serpent comes and puts strife between the man and the woman. And immediately there's blame the man blaming the woman. And and then part of the curse, God says, you know, to the serpent, when he's cursing the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So the enmity that we are supposed to have should be towards Mm -hmm. the evil one. 
Absolutely. But what happens is the enmity turns. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. There's yes. that. Uh, it, it splits up the team. And yes. if, did you ever see <clears throat> this may be a complete tangent, but I don't know if I've ever asked you. Have you ever seen the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie? OK, I watch it sometime. I want to get your thoughts, because to me, that movie is one of the best parables for marriage I, without. I mean, it's like 20 years old, so I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's basically it's a couple and they are both secret agents for competing uh, organizations and they don't know it and mm. they end up together and they are, I guess they like get hired to kill the other by the hire. It's this whole thing. So it's kind of a comedy, but kind of an action, but kind of a romance. And it, through the story, they start their marriage is dull there. I mean, it's like just the awful marriage. And then yeah. they fight and they literally try to kill each other, like with guns and fighting and everything. It's one of the, it's a very cool scene. And then after the fighting, through the genuine fighting, then they reconnect, like they reignite what brought them together in the first place. And then for the rest of the movie, it's them against the world. And it's such a cool, I've always, I'm not a therapist. I don't know squat about it. Uh, pastoral counseling is the class I did the worst in in seminary. But I always thought that is a brilliant met metaphor for what a marriage should be when it's in trouble is you refocus and you realize who the real enemy is and is no longer each other. And then you turn and there's this, we got to talk more off camera because there's a great scene at the end. And you talked about it being a dance and there's this scene where they're fighting and it's like a dance and all these assassins are coming at him. It's crazy. I mean, it's a crazy movie, yeah. but yeah. every time I watched it, I'm like, that is what I want in a marriage one day. They're fighting yes. against each other. There's a scene where literally they are like shooting and he's shooting this way and she's shooting that way. And they're like, they're dancing. But while they're dancing, yes. they're shooting the bat. It's such a beautiful image of what a marriage should be. If you get past that, who's the real enemy? Have you read C.S. Lewis's description of what fairy tales actually were meant to be? I've read him talking about it, but I don't know the specific one you're referring to. Okay. Top of my head. So he basically says... He says in the original fairy tales, the, the prince and princess get together mm -hmm. and then they're separated. So like, like they're like separated in these woods, they, they lose each other. Mm -hmm. And so he has to like defeat this dragon. She has to defeat this sorceress, right? Then they end up finding each other at the end and then they live happily ever after, mm -hmm. right? So like the whole idea is it's like they have to overcome like these their, their real enemies, mm -hmm. right? So in the same way that you're talking about, the two things I give couples, are, I give them basically two mantras. So the first mantra is, if it's important to you, it's important to me because it's important to you. Like just that, mm -hmm. that be the assumption of the relationship. It doesn't matter what it is, right? The second mantra is, it's you and me against the world, never against each other, mm -hmm. right? Right. So in, when you do therapy for depression or anxiety, there's, a, there's an intervention called externalization where people externalize the anxiety. Instead of saying I am anxious or I am depressed, you 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 it's like the depression is this thing that's coming at you, right? Well, I get couples to do that with their problems. Like there's this thing trying to interfere with our connection, and how can we stop this thing from doing that? And like you said, once that's the mindset, mm -hmm. couples therapy is actually really easy and really quick. If two if 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 you don't have enmity there, mm -hmm. 
usually you just have to give a few communication techniques or conflict resolution techniques and they're fine. Like they're, mm-hmm. you don't have to take a very long time to do that unless you're with an anxious and avoidant, unless they have no idea why they're together, right? Mm-hmm. Or unless you have enmity. Like it, when, when I have that enmity there, sometimes it takes a really long time to get them to even realize, okay, you are assuming neg- negative intention. Like you, everything you say assumes this person right. is actually trying to hurt you. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they get in the amygdala and, and, and they, it, it gets crazy because I tell them, you know, you, you're not supposed to be in the amygdala. What unless is that? You're trying. What's the amygdala oh, okay. for those who don't know? All right. So what I typically talk to couples about in conflict resolution is that the prefrontal cortex is a part of your brain where you're thinking rationally and you can make decisions and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you, when you shift from there to the amygdala, you're in fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's when, when people argue, that's when you say the meanest, cruelest, most evil things you can possibly say because you're in attack mode. Mm-hmm. And the problem is when that happens, when you get out of it, most people don't even remember what they said. Right? Yeah. Right. Unless you're somebody that's sensitive to words. Right. Like, so it's, and usually that's what happens. You have somebody that's really sensitive to words. Mm-hmm. This person said the cruelest, most evil things they can say. Then afterwards, it's like, I'm sorry for everything I said. And the other person's like, no, you said like. 20 very specific evil things that you need to go through. Right. Right. And they don't remember. Right. Because they're literally out of their mind. Mm. So what I get every couple to agree to are 20 minute timeouts. You can take up to three. So when they feel themselves moving into that, their their heart starts beating or they know they're getting triggered, separate for 20 minutes because it takes about that long to shift back here. Right. Mm. So when they come back together, they can say, hey, are you ready to talk? And they still don't feel ready. They can do another 20 minutes. They can do up to three. They typically don't need more than an hour. But the reason that's important is because typically in relationships, you have somebody that wants to talk about it right now. And you have somebody that wants space. Yeah. And they kind of get on each other's nerves. Right. Right. So it gives both of them what they need. The person that needs space knows they're going to get at least 20 minutes for space. Mm -hmm. The person that wants to talk knows they're not going to have to wait any longer than 20 minutes to an hour. But it's so that you can shift from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. It is useless. I cannot stress enough. It is absolutely useless to try to have a discussion when you when you're in the amygdala. Useless. Mm. Don't even try. Nothing will process. Everything will be weaponized nothing. and turned back against you. Every yeah. it, it, that's when you get into the hellish. You know, you get into those arguments that it's like it feels like you're in a twilight zone. It's like yeah. what in the world? Like yeah. it's like yeah. that's when you're in the amygdala because you're in this state. And I think Satan take. I think when when Paul talks about giving the devil an opportunity, that's uh-huh. what he means. Uh-huh. Like sinful anger because he's the adversary. So he, he thrives on that. Right. Yeah. So you give an opportunity because you're in a part of the brain that you only need to be in when somebody's coming into your house and you need to do self-defense. It's, right. it's for that. Right. So that's the time when you need to react so that your reaction will, you know, stop an assailant, but you never need to be like that with your wife or your husband. Right. right? But that's right. the mindset couples are in. They're in the same mindset that you're in when you have to fight someone. Mm hmm. Man, that's so good. And that's something that viewers can take away when they're having conflicts. I've been fortunate that I haven't had very many relationships where we've had like real angry arguments. I mean, I can count on one hand the number of times. But when that happened, I remember just feeling like, who is this person? Because this is not the person that I know. Why are they saying these things? And where is this coming from? And I as a biblical person, I just, you know, this is providing room for Satan. This is giving a foothold to the enemy. Yes. And so I would always try to bring it back. But the, the idea of taking that, that's a really good tip, taking a 20 minute break. 
uh, or if needed longer. Because I know for some people, yeah, you want to let's get it done. You know, it's a problem. Let's address it and we can move on. And not everybody is wired that way. The, the key is what you do during the 20 minutes also, because if you don't use the 20 minutes wisely, you're just going to come back more angry than when you left. Mm. So what I usually give them is when you're in the 20 minutes, I try to give people things that are really simple, because, again, it's like when you teach self-defense, like you're, mm -hmm. you're you're trying to get you have to have kind of like a muscle memory. You can't be trying to think about a whole lot of techniques. Right. right. So it's the same thing. Like, basically, it's like when you go to in the 20 minutes, what I say is remember the principle I gave earlier. If it's important to you, it's important to me because it's important to you. So when you go take those 20 minutes, you can think, okay, what is important to me right now? And then you can think what's important to the other person. And so when you come out, that's the first thing out of your mouth. Okay, you know what? It's really important to me that we spend time together. Hmm. The other person is like, yeah, it's, it's just important to me that you understand that I'm tired. Or, but notice, there's no enmity in that. Like, you typically when you state what's important to you, the other person is going to agree. Like, there's no enmity in that because one, there's already the agreement that if it's important to you, it's important to me. Hmm. But two, it's an inherently peacemaking conversation. Inherently hmm. peacemaking. And, yeah. and I, every couple I've talked to. Well, uh, well, one couple say, well, what if what's important to me is not important to me? Or what if what if I actually don't think that's important? Right. I was like, if you get to the essence of what's important, you, you probably will. Like most of the time, it's not going to be like that. You know, so even if you have now, though, if there's such diverging values that that's the case, then now you got to remember it. How can two walk together unless they agree? Right. So if you have this fundamental disagreement about what's important, okay, well, that's, that's a red flag. That goes yeah. back to red flag number one. So yeah. I just wanted to throw that in because what you do during the 20 minutes is important. Mm -hmm. Man, that's really good. And I hope viewers are taking notes because <laughs> I can see all of this stuff. I mean, yes, applying in marriage, like when the relationship has already started, but before getting into a relationship, yes. finding out those what is important to this person, you know, having those type of conversations before deciding, OK, this is the person I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket and we're going to try Ooh. to make this thing work. Um, yes. And that's really good, too, because because you're not talking about if I hear you right, you're not saying, oh, your wife likes watching HGTV. So that means you've got to watch HGTV with her and talk about flower beds. It's nothing like that. It's you got to find out what like why does she like HGTV? What is it about that that she likes? And then how can I find ways to, you know, value that in her? even if I don't yeah. have to sit and watch that show with her. <laughs> you just said it perfectly. Like, you're not going to typically disagree with that. Like, when if you find out, okay, if she likes to watch, you know, real real life housewives or whatever, right? Right. And that just seems like the most shallow thing possible, you know? I mean, that's it's an just, immediate red flag imagine. to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you out. just can't see any. <laughs> so you can find out okay why do you like to watch this show right right most of the time it's going to be you know i'm just because I, I actually had a couple like that uh -huh. it's like I, I really just like the the travel and the you know to me there, there is a sense in which there are there are interesting relationship dynamics that happen okay? right right you can agree to that right you can yeah. agree to that now you still might not agree with the show right but you can at least agree to why she likes the show you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Same thing with this fishing show that this guy's watching. Like, I, how can you sit and watch people fish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm out for that, too, by the way. If I meet a girl that likes fishing shows, we're just not going to work. 
The, <laughs> no, but what you're saying is what you're saying is really helpful because it can you can you can find like I can find something. Let me uh, let's take the Kardashians for example. I loathe everything about the brand that the Kardashians emulate. Like everything about. I'm not talking about their individual personalities or anything. I don't know them, but that whole thing, that whole entity that I think is one of the powers and principalities of this world and is legitimately evil because of how vapid it is. If I see nope, somebody who's like, I love that show. I love watching it. It would, I would be like, okay, I'm never going to appreciate that ever. But what do you find interesting? Okay. Let's talk about that. And now I could find myself sitting and being like, as long as you're okay with me hating this, I can sit here and watch it with you if we're having a discussion about these things that you're picking up on. Absolutely. You know, I just love Absolutely. the sister dynamic and I love how they're for family and this and that. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's unpack it. You can have a critical you in other words, you would you would view it like a critic, like like a, a movie yeah. critic or an art critic, where you don't have to like it. Mm -hmm. You can unpack it and it can still be meaningful and the other person can like it. But you're both yeah. getting what you want from it. You're I'm getting the fact that this is not just mindless garbage that's being pumped into somebody's brain. They're getting the fact that they're enjoying the junk food nature of it, but also kind of reflecting. They're you know self-reflective, and yeah, uh, you could do that with anything. You do that with you know somebody likes watching UFC, MMA, and somebody else is like, ugh, no, I hate this. You could actually talk about okay, what, why? Tell me, bring me into your world a little bit. Even if I don't want to, yeah. even if I leave when we're done, I, I step out of that world, I'll be in it for a minute and I will try to understand that that is trying to understand the person seems to be a right. huge component in a successful relationship, like making an effort to try to understand them. I man, you just said it. So the one of the the key communication tools I teach is open ended questions and reflections. And I, I usually have to give a definition of effective communication. So I say effective communication is the it's when the message sent is the message received and the goal is achieved. Mm -hmm. Message sent, message received, goal achieved. And then I have them to repeat that back. And then they repeat it back. And it's okay. We just communicated feedback. We you and I just did it. Mm -hmm. And so what I get them to do is to think, okay, when you're talking to each other, instead of again enmity, instead of just kind of waiting for the other person to get done so you can talk, right? You're really just trying to get into them. Right. And that's mm -hmm. we come out of the womb screaming. We don't come out listening. So listening is something you have to practice mm -hmm. doing. That's good. Yeah. You have to. Now, I remember when I was in graduate school, one of the older students, I was just talking to her and man, she was listening. This has happened twice in my life. First, she was listening and reflecting so well. It was it was amazing. I was like, wow, how are you able to do that? She says, believe me, this is very deliberate. She says mm -hmm. this is deliberate. Right. The other time I saw it, this was before I even studied. But this guy was talking to my dad. My dad, man, he talks like he. You talking about like <laughs> these long, drawn out folk tales and legends, right. and he'll just talk. And this guy sat and listened to him, and I've never forgotten that. It's like, how can anyone listen to my dad like that? <laughs> like I've never seen such a demonstration of patience, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm telling you is that connects people. Like when you feel really heard. When you mm -hmm. And what I tell couples to do is to, you want to reflect. So this is what I mean by open-ended questions. You know, say, you know, what are your thoughts about the Kardashians? Like, what what makes you like the show? That's an open-ended right. question. Right. Like this, you like this garbage? Yes. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Okay, so you ask an open-ended question. So let's say, well, I like the dynamics. 
I like the travel and, and I like the drama. So then you reflect that back. Okay, so the dynamics, the travel, the drama. Yes, tell me more about the dynamics. They tell you everything about that, you reflect it. But you don't stop until they say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Right. 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 And that process creates intimacy, even if you don't get it immediately. Like you might say, so is it so you're saying one, two and three It's like, no, not exactly that. Oh, OK, so what are you saying? But I, I can't stress enough, man. You don't stop until the person says, yes, that's exactly what I was saying. Mm-hmm. And that feels wonderful when somebody gets you like that. Right. Mm-hmm. When somebody's, you know, intentionally trying to understand you and even God, when he's when, when he talks about. You know, let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man in his strength or the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in the fact that he understands and knows me. Mm. Right. Even God seems to value being understood and known. Like, I mean, that's like he, he wants you to have an accurate understanding of it. Right. So to me, the key to everything is to to value the other person to such an extent that they're worth that effort. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you can communicate that you're creating you can create intimacy. Mm. Keyword created. It's not something that just happens. Yeah. You can create it. That pivots perfectly into theological discussions where, uh, so I, I have a video, <clears throat> a couple of videos here on the channel where I um, presented Calvinism to a group of non-Calvinists, like to the, it was to the, they had me back at Wesley Foundation like years later and they said, teach it, you know, teach on Calvinism because these are a bunch of Methodists, they're not Calvinists. Mm -hmm. And so when I went in, I said, I'm going to teach this to you because I had seminary professors that were Calvinists. I went to a interdenominational seminary, so I got to learn from Calvinists, non-Calvinists. So I said, I'm going to teach this to you as if I believe it. And I'm going to teach the best version of it. And then afterwards, I'll tell you why I don't, why I'm not ultimately convinced. But what I found was, one, for me, in doing that exercise and in doing that teaching, it makes it harder for me to caricature Calvinists, unless I'm doing it for fun and teasing them, which my Calvinist friends and I do with each other. But when when somebody starts bashing Calvinism uh, flippantly or making straw man arguments, like I am like, wait a minute, no, no, that's not what they believe. That's your... You're not being fair to their position. And yeah. it creates so that video I posted, I was expecting I'm gonna get slammed because the internet's full of angry Calvinists. Well, most, not all, but most of the responses in the YouTube comments from Calvinists were thank you for this video. This is for the for once you guys get it. Like I felt like I was being accurately represented in this video. Thank you for that. And then, you know, even when they disagreed with me on the follow-up and and they still there was that there was a bridge that created at least conversational intimacy where we weren't at war with each other. It, they, you know, Absolutely. the defenses were down. It was like, OK, let me actually listen to what you're saying. And we we tried to do that here on the channel when I had Carmen Imes on Dr. Carmen Imes, a friend of mine who's an Old Testament scholar. And we talked about women in ministry. And that's another area where Christians can become like vitriolic against each other. And so we just talked about the view that we have. And, yeah. and I had people watch that video with the same response. I had people message me saying, hey, I'm on the other side of you on this issue. But that was a really fair discussion. And I appreciate the demeanor. And it created this. It, it opened up a, a, an actual relationship. It opened up. And I yeah. think theologically it it leads to unity in the body across theological yeah. divides. But taking that out of the realm of theology and applying it into a relationship is something that, you know, some of the people that are 
biblical attuned that watch this channel, they may not have ever thought about turning it into onto their marriage or their dating mm -hmm. relationship and applying the exact same principles. What you said is key. Everyone know, wants to know they've been heard and they've been accurately understood. Yeah. And if you disagree, you disagree and you can go from there. But until you've been accurately understood, arguments will always be circular. Yeah. So the, one of the key ways I teach this is through Mortimer J. Adler's book, How to Speak and How to Listen. And so he defines a meeting of the minds as mutually understood agreement or mutually understood disagreement. Mm. Right. But it's but the first step is he, he what he says is you are not qualified to respond until you understand the other person. You're not even don't even respond until you do. Right. Mm, so I tell so couples don't respond. Right. You're not qualified. Now, like you just said, you know, and I, I've experienced it in therapy. I've experienced it with my wife. Usually people don't mind as much as you disagreeing with them if you understand what you're disagreeing with. Right. They actually don't mind it that much. Right. right. Because right. and that's the, the thing that happens in these arguments where you're in the amygdala is you're not even like sometimes people are fighting, but they don't actually have an accurate understanding of what the other person is saying. Right. And then they have five arguments about things that have nothing to do with what this person is actually saying. I, have to, yes. I deal with that constantly. Right. So you're right. I mean, I think, again, if I can teach couples to do that. I see like immediate. So the other things with systems theory is systems theory isn't focused on the past unless the past is impacting the present. Mm. Right. We don't. So it's not psychoanalytical. We don't believe in all of that. Right. Mm. So, for example, if I go out to the lobby, James Michael, and I see a couple hugging, kissing, lovey-dovey, joking, and then they come back to my office and then they bring up a situation that happened three weeks ago and now they're mad. Mm. And they leave the office mad. I say, wait a minute. You guys came in completely connected. So you shouldn't leave disconnected. Right. Mm. So I try to get them to see, look, you know, let's focus on making a connection happen in the session. Like I don't like typically what I'll do is it's called an enactment. So let's say they just previously had an argument. Well, I have them to, to, to do the argument in front of me. Right. And then we'll reenact it. Right. So that they can communicate effectively. Right. And it, it, the beautiful thing about how the brain works is it changes. It changes the past. Like you, mm -hmm. you end up remembering the reenactment argument. Right. Well, if I go out to the lobby and there one, the guy sitting on one side, the woman sitting on the other and they're huffing and puffing. OK, there's a there's a problem in the present. Right. But again, all you're trying to do is is get them to ask open ended questions, reflections. And you'll be surprised. They will. It's almost like they'll have these epiphanies. They'll realize they'll. Well, what typically happens is I'll have them to do it with me first. So I'll just be talking to the guy and I will talk. The wife will listen. Then I'll do it to the wife. Right. And I model how to do what I'm talking about. And usually they have these epiphanies about each other. They'll be like, wow, I never knew you thought that or I never knew she thought mm. that. Right. Yeah. But it's because of what we're talking about right now. You, and it's, it's amazing because this is a consistent thing that I see in couples is, you know, the lack of agreement the insecure attachments or enmity and all of that impacts how people talk to each other. Mm -hmm. There are layers and layers to everything. And when you have two people, a relational dynamic between two people, you have double the layers. And I can yes. only imagine how much unpeeling <laughs> you have to do just to get people to see what is the, this is what you guys are actually fighting about, or this is what is actually motivating this conflict. And, and 
dismiss or, or getting them to dismiss the other stuff, the peripheral noise, the secondary issues and say, no, no, this is the core issue. Cause that's hard to do in any discussion, in any argument. It's hard to do with, uh, you know, biblical topics. Uh, the, when you talk about, well, we won't even go there. I was gonna say like the, you get into the whole Middle East, Israeli, Palestinian, Zionism, all that, you've got like 500 issues all balled into one. And trying to get two people on opposite sides of that to sit down and have a conversation, you have to first peel away dozens of peripheral stuff to, just to get to a point where you can say, okay, I agree with what we're, I agree with that we're arguing about the same thing. And yeah. I can only imagine in a family and especially a marriage relationship, What's that? What? How much work that takes? Intent, like you said, intentional. Being intentional about it, and being open yeah. to it. What's the biggest For challenge? Sure what What's the biggest challenge in that regard that you get from couples you're working with? Like I, challenge. What's the biggest pushback that you get? What, let's take what you just said about the layers. Okay. I actually teach the opposite of that. So like okay. I teach that my job is to simplify and clarify. Like I think the biggest pushback, and it kind of goes back to what I was telling you earlier about how people see relationships. People think relationships are this this bundle of complexity and it's really messy and it's just, you know, relationships are just, I don't think it is, man. Like I, I think, mm. I think we're taught that because people come to me and they'll say, well, we, we got a lot to unpack. We're going to have a lot to unpack in this. And I'm just like, mm. Maybe not. Maybe you don't. Right. Mm, OK. And so what I typically do is I, I'll, I'll take it back to kindergarten days. I do this a lot. Whereas I don't, I don't know if you did this when you were in kindergarten, but like on the playground, see some nice girl, you like her. You write the note. I like you. Do you like me? Check the box. And it's a yes or no box. And then it's a bona fide established documented relationship. Right? <laughs> Clearly it's established. All right. <laughs> All right. So that happens basically. And this I'm telling you, I was thinking about this which shows that God has called me to marriage and family therapy. In sixth grade, that changes. It's like, I like you. Do you like me? Check the box. And there's a yes box. There's a no box. And then there's a maybe, maybe. box. <laughs> maybe. Now relationships are complicated in sixth grade, right? <laughs> now, last year, it was just a yes or no. Okay, I, th I don't think anything has fundamentally changed in the context of that basic, I like you, do you like me? I don't think anything has fundamentally changed in terms of just in relationships, you basically want to focus on what is what's called I statements. I feel, I need, I want. Mm -hmm. I feel, I need, I want. Okay. And then usually I have to do psychoeducation on what feelings are, which hopefully we'll get to that because that's also very crucial. Typically what I have to, I'll just look a couple in the face and say, what do you want? Like what, you know, right now, what do you need from him or what do you need from her? Well, you know, then they, they really they make it seem like there's all these years of things that, that they have to answer. To answer. I was like, no, just right now, what do you need? What do you want? Once they say that, man, I promise you, all of these things that they want to unpack is typically like this domino effect of unpacking it because, and I know this from having been married, most arguments are the same argument, man. Like you're not having it. It's not like you have any new arguments. It's like this. <laughs> and they'll say that. It's like, it's like we're in the Groundhog's Day. We just keep having the same argument. Right. And that argument is what they've been having for 10, 15 years. And so you don't need to un systems theory. Believe that's that's a part of systems thinking. You don't have to unpack all of that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go back and get hypnotized and, and figure out all these things from the past. 
and there's a specific term that I forget in systems theory, but it basically means whatever issue you have now mm-hmm. is the issue you've always had. That's pretty much what the word means. I can't, I, if I can remember that word, I'll give it to you later. What, well, what are you thinking? Well, so what I'm, what I'm thinking is, I think you're saying what I was trying to say, but you're saying it a little more clearly. Surprise, surprise. What I was trying to say is you have to f- filter out all the noise or filter out the excess, the peripherals, the layers of resentment and the, like, yeah. So I'm not trying to say you got to unpack that and sit and talk about what I'm saying. Is you you. got to get it out of the equation yes, and yes, figure out what the real thing is. Yes. And when you have two people, you have double that amount of, of background noise to, yes. to filter out and get both people to see, hey, this is why you're always fighting over them leaving their socks on the floor or, you know, Absolutely. her not wanting to go to this event or whatever, whatever it is. The pushback is people don't believe that. Yeah. So so when you, when you ask about the pushback, uh-huh. they don't believe that. They don't believe what you just said. Mm. So they believe that, no, we've got to solve all 10 years of issues. When when John Gottman, let's go back to him, he says 69% of issues in marriage are unresolvable. Hmm. 69% of them are unresolved, wow. right? That's a lot of unresolved. So you don't have, so, so that, that, what is it? 31% that's left, whatever the math is. Right. That is what you need to focus on, right? Yeah. And again, usually that remainder gets to core values, mm-hmm. which is usually, they don't have, that, this is the funny thing about it. They're usually trying to resolve the 69% that's unresolvable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Remainder, which is core values and, the things that are important, they usually don't have a conflict there. Hmm. Right. So it's like, okay, if I say to them, look, you don't have to resolve all of that. Right. Now, ironically, older couples, they buy into it because they, they see what I'm talking about. It's like, yeah, because when you get older, you just kind of let stuff go, man. You know, like right. the older you get, <laughs> the more you just like, you know what, just like, right. the younger couples that come into me, they give a lot of pushback. They think mm. that you really got to unpack everything that's happened from day, and they'll say from day one, right? Which is another misnomer. Nothing's been happening from day one, right? Mm-hmm. But that, but they'll say, oh, from the time we met, from the time we met, we've been having this problem. So they really, I don't know why it is, but people push back on this idea that you that you don't have to go through all of these layers. That you actually have to clear out those distractions. People don't yeah. believe that. Mm. That's good because it's yeah. That seems like it would be self evident, but. It maybe it seems too easy. Uh, or too it good to be easy. true. It seems you just said it. it. That's how. That's what they say. That sounds too easy. Yeah. That sounds too good to be true. Because again, there's this idea: relationships are messy. Relationships are complicated. And I, yeah. I, I, with everything in me, I don't believe that. Hmm. Would you say relationships aren't messy and complicated, but some people are? Like, no, I wouldn't. You don't think and people? This is why. Okay, tell me that. Because that would be my immediate thought was like, wait a minute, now if you're dealing with people, though, okay, there can be mess and drama and this and that. But but tell me your thoughts. When we get to the question, what do you need? Because mm-hmm. usually the, the messy people, they don't embrace that they have needs. They don't mm-hmm. embrace that there's certain things that they should need. So okay. they, they go back. It's really like this internal war they're having with themselves mm-hmm. where they have these needs. They won't admit that they have those needs. They won't acknowledge they won't have those needs. They don't tell the other person they have those needs. Right. right? They should just know. So, 
They should just know. What do you mean I have to tell them? They should just know. Yeah. I mean, I mean if you love me, you would know, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. That is the messiness. It's all of right. this, you know, the, the not embracing your knees, not sharing it, not, you know, but it's, it's a self-imposed messiness. Okay. That's what it is. It's, okay. It's not, and usually what I have to say is, okay. And I usually have to psychoeducate them about attachment theory, which is mm -hmm. basically whatever your needs are, they're valid. They're, they're valid needs. Right. Mm -hmm. So once I do that, because even when we're talking, because remember, even in systems theory, the first system we're dealing with is the, the therapist client system, my relationship with them. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's getting them to be honest with me. Like, just I'm just asking you, what do you need? Right. Like, just tell me, well, you know, maybe I'm just they'll start making excuses. I was like, what do you need? Just, just tell me what you need in a relationship. Right. Mm. That, again, it's hard for people to be honest with themselves about. Well, I think a lot of it is Western culture. We don't think we're supposed to need anything. Yeah. You know, we're not supposed to have needs. Right. Needs are a weakness. So time, yeah. So we have to get past that. So to answer your question, I think I don't think there's any actual messiness individually. I think it's self-imposed. Hmm. Okay. That's really good. That's good food for thought for people watching for sure. How do feelings factor into all this? Because feelings change, feelings come and go. Love is an action. Love is a choice. Uh, you can just love somebody because they're a good person. You choose to love them and the feelings will come. Like, where, where do feelings even factor into how you work? So... I used to believe what you just said, because that's what I was taught. I used to distrust feelings like just big time, you know. But that was because I didn't know what they were. They, I would almost resent God for them because they just seemed like they had, didn't have a purpose. If we're just supposed to ignore them, then why do we have them, right? Mm. Okay, so what I came to realize is that, first of all, the word emotion comes from the word motion. And it, it means that it's trying to get you to do something very specific, right? So you have four basic emotions. So ang when you're angry, it's because there's been a violation of a boundary, right? So it's like the dog growling at you, right? So healthy anger is when a boundary has been violated and you need to reestablish it. That's healthy anger. Unhealthy anger, like Jesus said, is when you're angry without a cause. No boundary has actually been violated, but you're angry anyway, or you're out of control. And so one of the analogies I give people to consider is God, like how God deals with situations. So like Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the most beautiful depictions of this. He comes down to Abraham and he says, you know, the outcry has of, from Sodom and Gomorrah has come up to me to the extent that I'm going to see if the outcry matches what's happening. And then I'll know. Now you got the omniscient God doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. OK, he's giving us a model of how you deal with anger. Mm -hmm. Right. You first of all kind of investigate. Has a boundary been actually violated in the situation? Mm -hmm. Was it intentionally violated? If so, then Jesus gives a model. You go to the person by themselves. You let them know because the goal is to just establish the boundary. Right. right. That's healthy anger. Right. Depression means there's a disconnection. Right. Some type of loss of something meaningful. So what the depression is trying to get you to do is either be reconciled to that which was lost. Or if you cannot be reconciled to it, to mourn that loss and to create a new connection. Mm. That is how that is healthy sadness. Right. OK. Yeah. Healthy sadness is when you, you, you don't acknowledge this. And. When I do grief therapy, people, man, you would not believe this. Like in, in America, we don't want to be sad. Now we want to be mad, but we don't want to be sad, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you have people, they will have somebody that just died, 
and they're just like, well, I got to get over it. I got to move on. You know, I mean, I used to deal with, I was like, no, like we, we have to have a shared acknowledgement of loss, shared mm-hmm. acceptance of loss, restructuring your life, recreating life. Those are the four processes, right? So when sadness does what it's supposed to do, which is establish a reconnection, right? Or mourn a loss connection and establish a new one, then it's healthy sadness, right? Anxiety is meant to move you from danger to safety. That is the purpose of anxiety, danger, safety. So if it's if it's healthy anxiety, there is danger and you know where safety is. It's unhealthy when there is no danger. So it's like being afraid of the fire alarm instead of the fire. Right. Right. That's what with anxiety disorders. That's what it's like. They're anxious about being anxious. Right. Okay. so what I typically get people to do is to just ask themselves the question, is there danger? It could be relational danger, emotional danger, physical danger, but just ask yourself the question, is there danger? Because God has given us anxiety to create a plan. It's supposed to be like a like a fire drill or like a tornado drill. Right. So, for example, a lot of people say, well, I just overthink things. It's like your brain. You, the anxiety wants you to do that. But most of the time with anxiety, the, the kryptonite of anxiety is avoidance. They avoid the situation that creates anxiety. So they ultimately end up reinforcing it because God has wired us so beautifully that our bodies will recalibrate themselves if nothing's wrong because the body, even in our fallen state, the body doesn't want to be in a state of disequilibrium. It doesn't want adrenaline and cortisol flowing unless you need it. But with anxiety, you don't give the body a chance to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you end up reinforcing panic and so forth and so on versus the body. So what happens is your heart starts beating, adrenaline's pumping, cortisol's pumping. So your heart's talking to your brain. And the heart's saying, okay, can you put him in tunnel vision so we can see if there's a tiger or something out there? Mm. Tunnel vision, like no tiger. Okay, can we go to auditory exclusion so we can hear if there's a tiger? No tiger. So the heart's saying to the brain, can you tell him to chill out? Because I can't keep this going much longer. Nothing's going on. So the brain's like, well, he believes something is going on, so we got to get him ready. Yeah, But the heart's like, I thought you just said nothing's going on. If you let the body do what it's supposed to do, just like when you take your car to the mechanic and there's a check engine light on, and it doesn't need to be on, you turn it off. That will happen, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't let it happen. Now, the beautiful thing, here's the thing I tell Christians, especially that come to therapy. Anything that I've learned that's evidence-based and research-based and, and, and works, either Jesus said it or Paul said it or one of the prophets said it. It's like mm-hmm. in the, everything I'm saying is in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So you see, David, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. So when he's in danger, God is his safety. Right. So he he knows he knows what danger is and he knows where to go. Right. And then finally, you have happiness, which means keep doing what you're doing. Right. But sometimes we can hijack that with dopamine and we kind of reattach that to something that we shouldn't attach it to. Hmm. But usually what I do is I do that's So basically, that's the groundwork for emotional intelligence to be able to identify, experience and express your emotions. So each emotion has a context. Right. So when you understand the context of the emotions and let that emotion do what it's supposed to do in that context is a healthy emotion. Hmm. Do you, would you say that you can't. Would you say you. You can't control your emotions or do you think you can control them? Do you think there's something you just experience and then you decide how to respond? Or do you think there's a way that you actually can choose not to. I've heard both arguments on that. What do you think? You can, yeah, yeah, you control them indirectly. So that's usually cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. So the idea is we have core. So the, so the cognitive behavioral therapy model is that you, you think of the letters A, B, and C. You have an activating event, 
and you have a belief, then a consequent emotion and action. Okay, so according to the cognitive behavioral therapy model, it's not A that's causing C, it's B that's causing C. So for example, let's say the activating event is I call my wife and she doesn't answer the phone. That's the event. So if I say to myself, why is she disrespecting me? She knew I was going to call her, right? Mm. Consequent emotion, anger, consequent action, I might leave an angry message, right? But then I find out that the bat- her battery was dead and I got to apologize because I was being a jerk. Right. Same thing, next, same thing happens. Activating event, call her, she doesn't answer. This time I say to myself, maybe her battery's dead. Consequent emotion, neutral. Consequent action, hey, when you get a chance, call me back. Mm. Same thing, same event, but it's what I said to myself that created the consequent emotion and action, right? So what's being suggested, like it says in Romans 12, is that you, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you establish a core belief, right? So we define core beliefs or mindsets as fixed mental dispositions that predetermine your interpretation and response to the situation. That's like dictionary.com definition, right? A fixed mental disposition that's gonna predetermine how you interpret and respond to the situation, which predetermines your emotions. Mm -hmm. So for example, armed with what I said today, if you know that anxiety is about danger to safety, then then that means when you experience it, you can, you're, 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 you legitimize that emotion because it's a source of information. You don't ignore it. Like animals don't ignore it. Like you can't gaslight a cat. You know, cats cannot be gaslighted. They're just like, you know, what, what, what was that? What? <laughs> I heard Basically, they just, they just keep listening until, okay, no, there's no danger. Right. Right. But they don't ignore it. They don't ignore the sound. So when you have anxiety, you don't need to ignore it. You just need to ask yourself the question. Okay. Is there danger? And yeah. if there is, where is safety? If you feel angry, you ask yourself the question. Okay. Is there a boundary that's been violated? Now the key with that, James Michael, is, you know, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what I tell couples is, okay, if you've never told this person your boundary, now you're going into the realm of being angry without a cause. They didn't know. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, so to answer your question, yes, you can control them once you understand what the emotions are for. So either you control them in terms of your mindset or when you feel them, you allow them to do what they're supposed to do in that context. Now that you know what they're for. Tell me what you're saying about that. Yeah. Well, so I think that what you're saying would be that every emotion is valid in some way. Yes. But and and every so I I hear from Christians a lot of times they are almost ashamed that they feel certain emotions like, well, I shouldn't be angry or I shouldn't be frustrated or I shouldn't be. They imagine Jesus as this serene, never angered, never frustrated. He was frustrated and angry numerous times in the Gospels. Yeah. It's the where, where it comes into sin and holiness is, are you feeling, one, are you feeling it, it justified? Is it justified? Yes. Uh, yes. And then even if it is justified, how are you responding? How are you acting on it? Which just sounds like what you're saying is, are you taking, Absolutely. are you believing the best in another person? Are you choosing to believe the best or are you choosing to believe the worst? And if you're choosing right. to believe the worst, you're going to respond in a way that may or may not be accurate. Whereas if you believe yeah, I think, the best, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, there's something you said that I want okay. to key in on justified. So there's a difference between validation and justification. Mm, so if you okay, think about, that? okay, so the check engine light 
is valid. But every time the check in the light comes on, that's a, it's a valid thing, but it might not be justified. Mm. There may not be a problem with the engine. You see what I'm saying? So you can feel angry, like be angry, but do not sin, right? Mm. So he's saying, okay, the emotion is a valid emotion, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's an emotion we have. You have to just check in with, like God did, right? I, I, I'm, this outcry has come out, so now I'm going to investigate it. When you feel the emotion, you can accept it as a valid emotion because it, it is the issue. Is, so is it warranted or justified in this situation? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to suppress it or express it. You acknowledge. So remember, emotional intelligence means to identify the emotion. I feel angry. A lot of times people don't even know that. Right. Mm-hmm. Then to experience it. OK, what is this anger in relationship to? Is there a boundary that has been violated? If no boundary has been violated, then you got to let that anger go because no, no boundary has been violated. Or it might mean that you need to tell somebody that you have a boundary because they didn't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And thus, the third part is to express it, identify, experience and express the emotion. God does that. He, I mean, he's God is I mean, he's incredibly emotionally intelligent when he's, you know, mm-hmm. I, he felt sorrowful and regretted making people. But then he always acts. That's the thing. He'll express an emotion and then. Two or three verses later, he's acting, and then the emotion subsides. Now, that's another key component. Natural emotions, when they do what they're supposed to do, they will subside. Mm. Manufactured emotions won't Mm. because you're fueling an emotion. So I have to teach clients the difference between natural and manufactured emotions also. Oh, man, that's good. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with how emotional God is in the Bible. And so they either completely anthropomorphize it to say it's it's all you know especially in the middle ages like god was uh, impassable there's a doctrine of yeah. divine impassibility where he doesn't feel anything it's just he has to communicate with us and we feel so the authors talk about it as if god felt exactly and that I don't think you can ever go that far because of how pervasive the feelings of God are presented in scripture. It's they're not presented as exceptions. Like God coming down and checking on Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that that he's not physically he's not cognitively trying to figure something out. He already knew exactly. it. Just like with the Tower of Babel, him coming down, it's all part of he teaches through his behavior with the Sabbath, his behavior, you know, I work yes. for six, six days and then I rest. That is, I'm do, I'm revealing this pattern to ingrain in you something exactly. that you should do. Be holy for I am holy. So I want your behavior to reflect me. And I think that's a really good point about the Sodom and Gomorrah passage. God verifying firsthand, Absolutely. so to speak, before yes, yes. dropping the hammer. And Absolutely. a lot of times in relationships, yeah, we don't want to do that. We we know, we already know what it is. We're ready to drop the hammer. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Re- ready. Key word, James Michael. Ready to drop. Waiting. When that comes to the end. Yeah. And you don't see that with God in scripture. You actually see the opposite. You see him in that instance, in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, because it troubles a lot of people. It's noting there was an entire region, however many hundreds, thousands, don't know, however many people were in that region, and God was going to overlook all of it if there were only 10 righteous. Mm-hmm. He was like, I will let it all slide if you can just find 10. In other words, showing how disproportionate 
his mercy and grace is compared to his judgment, yeah. but that doesn't mean his judgment's not there. And that's exactly what he tells Moses when he reveals his name, uh, when he passes by and, you know, merciful and gracious and, and extending love to the thousands, even if he visits the iniquity of the father to the child to the second generation or third generation. Yeah. So yeah, th that's God's giving us glimpses of who he is as, uh, guidance for who he wants us to be and you're doing what you're doing is helping people connect those dots absolutely and, and make the connection like yeah this is how you can apply this in the realm of emotional intelligence tell me what you think about this because this is a somewhat of a theological comparison i'm making uh-huh okay so you know how paul would write his letters and clearly there would have been conversations that he had before he had written the letters, because he'll say, he'll be like, you remember when I talked to you guys about this? Remember when I said, so clearly some type of discussion has happened in mm -hmm. person. And then he'll say things like, I'll say more about this when I see you, right? We'll talk more about it. So it seems to me, like when, like, you know how sometimes we'll read passages and they're like, you know, walk in the spirit, you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we're like, what in the world does that mean? How do you do that practically, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so it seems like he would have been expounding on that when he, like when people talk to them, he would expound on it. Mm -hmm. What I've been experiencing is my job in a lot of ways when it deals with relationships is I'm expounding on scriptural principles. Like that's that's what I find myself doing. Like, so there'll be a scriptural principle. Yeah. And I think what systems theorists and psychologists and all of them have done, they're like expound, they just kind of explain how to do it, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess I'm wondering if that's an accurate way to think about it. Like, do you, do you, do you believe that, because I think the role that, that we have in the body when you have Bible teachers like you, or like there's one of my favorite passages, I can't, I can't ever remember whether it's Nehemiah or Ezra were like the, it's like they explain the scriptures to everybody, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 and they said, you know, they explain it to adults and all who could understand. So it's like little kids weren't there, right? right. Which, which stood out to me because it wasn't like some youth ministry, right? Mm -hmm. They just explained it to the people who could understand it. And they said they they made it plain. It's like, I think that's how they put it. It's like, it's like they took the scriptures and made it very plain and understandable. The assembly. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it seems like it seems like that that's the role of Bible teachers or that's, or in my realm, that's what I'm doing is I'm just making certain things plain. And, and I'm, I'm saying all that to get your take on it because sometimes people approach me that are believers. They think the Bible is like impractical. They're like, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I just need something practical. I'll say yeah. Paul actually is being pretty practical. Like I think he's like when I when whenever I think about what it means to walk in the spirit, like it is a mindset. And that is what Paul says. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I just break that down. But I do think I, I do think that the scriptures are very practical. But I think we need each other in terms of the spirit guiding us to to help expound on it. Tell me what do you think about that? Yes, I, I think that 100 percent. And I. I think there, if you if you pull a piece out, if you if you take away a piece of the body, then the whole body suffers. So you need people who are translating the language. I mean, that's what the people did in in the ancient times, especially like in the Targums and the synagogues, when when Aramaic became the dominant language and people no longer spoke Hebrew. They would still hear the Bible being read in Hebrew, but they didn't know what they were hearing. And so the, the Targums, the, the Aramaic translations, they were people speaking the language of the people. The Septuagint did it as well for the Greek-speaking Jews in Egypt. They, you need those people like explaining the words 
And then yeah. you need people in the body who are saying, okay, now here's what these words would have meant in that time because they've done the archaeological work, they've done the historical work, they they know the lay of the land. And and then that's where biblical scholarship comes in. The, the people that we talk to a lot here on this channel, that's what they engage in full time. So you have people that know the text, like translators and linguistic grammatical uh, observations, people that know the culture and the background, the biblical scholarship world. Then you need people who can proclaim it, who can take it all away from academia and explain it to normal everyday people. That's kind of where I see myself. And that's where preachers fall into play, good, solid preaching. Yeah. And I think then you need the people doing what you're doing, which is being the next step in that or, or a different link and saying, now here's how you very specifically apply this in your relationship with this person yeah. you're married to or you're dating. Yeah. So, so I see it all as links in a chain. We're all pulling from the same source, the spirit of God yeah. revealed in scripture. That's our authority. And so we're pulling from that source and then directing the flow where it needs to go. I think good doctors do the same thing when they're, and they yeah. specifically how to healing people. I think good scientists mm -hmm. do the same thing where they, they are expounding and, and, and investigating and pressing knowledge forward, whether it's in mathematics or physics or chemistry. Yeah. I, I look at it. It's all from the source. It's all from God. Yeah. Um, I think you're exactly right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, Paul did have things that, I mean, a lot of, most of Thessalonians, if I, off the top of my head, I feel like most of Thessalonians is him just saying, you remember what we talked about? Keep an eye out. This is what I've already told, you know, like there was that, he was their pastor. Um, yeah. And we have to have people and, and you know, that's kind of what Disciple Dojo hopes to do and what we're trying to do is, yeah. and that's why I wanted to have you on is because that the area of relationships is one that some people think either the Bible has nothing to say or the Bible says everything and there's nothing to add yeah. or expound. And yeah. I think both of those are errors uh, because yeah. I think the Bible gives us principles. And that's what I see. That's what I see you doing in, in, in all of our interactions. Um, that's how it is. I feel like you're you're expounding, seeking to expound scripture in in this realm. You know, yes, because it is relevant. It just sometimes yeah. it needs to be translated, and translating Absolutely. into emotional is just like translating into any other language because we aren't we aren't taught to handle our emotions. My a friend of mine, Jason Wilson, he runs the Cave of Adullam, which is a the minister outreach in Detroit that works with inner city boys, particularly those that have fatherless wounds or, or just boys in high risk areas. And one of his main things he does with the boys at his program, it's a martial arts based program, but yeah. it's comprehensive. They he, he developing comprehensive men. One of the main things he has to do with those boys is get them to say what they feel when, when they're, you know, there's a, the documentary. If you've seen the documentary, it's on ESPN. If you haven't seen it, it's called The Cave of Adullam, where David trained his mighty men. It is wonderful. Lawrence Fishburne produced it. Um, Jason, uh, I've known him for just on online for a couple of years now, but we've talked before. He's a great guy. He's doing what you're doing with couples is giving them the vocabulary and the knowledge and the ability to express that inexpressible stuff. 
that's going yeah. on inside of them. Words that, that, you know, it's like, I feel this, I feel this. And for the, for young boys, it's like, they either go into, you know, shutdown mode or aggression mode and yeah. just getting them to express their feelings starts to change that entire behavioral framework. So for couples getting them to be able to express, yeah, this, this is what I'm mad at. Or yeah. this is what I'm anxious about, or this is, yeah, that's, that's huge. And it's not, it's yeah. not natural in the sense that yeah. we don't naturally know how to do it. We have to have exactly. people help us. So I, exactly. what you're doing, I think is phenomenal work. And that's why I wanted to highlight it more. Thank you. Um, you mentioned earlier, I want to ask you this. You mentioned, you used the word gaslighting and you had the memorable line, you don't gaslight a cat, which I think is hilarious. Uh, but that term gets thrown around in, in cultural context now all the time, gaslighting. Ga yep. The two terms that pop up everywhere in social media these days, this in this age, are gaslighting and narcissism. Absolutely. Everybody that has ever disagreed with you is gaslighting you. And everyone Absolutely. who's ever disagreed with you, it's because they're a narcissist. I mean, these yeah, terms yeah, get yeah. thrown around. So from somebody who's actually in a professional field that deals with this, how should we think of those two terms? How, what is genuine gaslighting and genuine narcissism versus how people just use them colloquially? I'm going to actually write a blog that's going to give a take on gaslighting that's going to cut through a common issue I see with couples. Because an, an, another word that comes up a lot is defensive. Mm -hmm. He's so defensive. You're, why are you being so defensive, right? So first of all, let me illustrate that there's a healthy defensiveness and unhealthy defensiveness. Like people make it seem like being defensive is just this bad thing. So if like, if I'm gonna, if I try to punch you in the face and you dodge and you say, oh, you need, they're not gonna say, James Michael, why are you so defensive? Why are you right, being so defensive? Right. Okay, that, that's what happens with couples. They say offensive things to the person, right? Mm -hmm. And then the person defends themselves. And then they say, why are you being so defensive? That's actually a form of gaslighting. Okay. That. Because you're making it seem like this, you're trying to tell this person that the reality they're experiencing is not happening. So when you, and I have to do this with couples, when you speak offensively to a person, it is natural for them to give a defense, right? But then when you try to act like you didn't say anything to them that was offensive, all I said was, you know, I feel like you're a narcissist. That's all I said, but those, and those are just my feelings. Now notice this, notice, I feel like you are a right. narcissist right okay right, so right. that's not a feeling that's a thought that's an opinion right. if i had to go through feelings are mad glad sad and afraid those are feelings mm. not i feel like you are because you're not or i feel like you're attacking me people say that a lot uh, well remember the the punch to the face is not a feeling it's an action right, right. now pain and anger those are the feelings see the difference yeah. okay so real gaslighting is when you are doing something, the person is acknowledging what you're doing and you're acting as if you didn't do what they said you were doing, right? And, 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 to say, and it's not as dramatic as people make it out to be. I mean, it happens a lot, but it's, it's nowhere near as a big deal, honestly. I mean, this is really not that, I mean, it's, it's in, in this takes us to narcissism and just mental disorders, period. Like if you go to the emergency room, 90% of the people in the emergency room do not need to be there, right? Mm -hmm. The 10% that do, you know who they are because they're bleeding out of their eyes and, you know, there's a bunch of commotion. Okay, it's the same thing. Narcissism is a personality disorder, right? Mm -hmm. 
those are very hard to diagnose, very rare, mm -hmm. right? But when you encounter it, you know it, right? Because what therapists typically, so typically psychologists and therapists, we use the DSM-5, we use all of these measures to determine things. But one of the things that we use is prototypes. So a prototype is a mental picture of someone who's come into your experience that matches the disorder to such an extent that you can, you always gotta refer back to that person, right? right? But what I'm saying is a narcissist, right, is you're, you're rarely going to meet an actual narcissist, rarely. Now, I, I can say, and you've, you've said this before, I think you you wrote about it or something, but I mean, Trump does actually kind of fit. I mean, he does. Like, if you, he's, a, he's a pretty good picture. Right. right. But beyond that, what I would say to the, to, there's a lot of buzzwords, narcissism, gaslighting, being triggered, you know, there's, there's all these words and it's, it's almost like the pendulum has swung to where mental health wasn't respected for a long time. Now everything, like a, like everything's, everything's triggering, everything's yeah. right. Okay. So I think the key is to define a mental disorder. It's, it's when you have clinically, clinically significant impairment and distress personally, vocationally and relationally, mm. right? That's a mental disorder, right? Okay personality disorders of which narcissism borderline personality disorder okay the reason you really want to be careful with those is because personality disorders are typically rare and hard to treat right it, it would be like having a james michael disorder right it's like what james michael is mm. is a disorder mm -hmm. right okay so think about that like that that's what it's saying it's saying that this is something that's so ingrained in who you are but it's a disorder, right? Do they exist? Yes, they're just extremely, extremely rare. Like the psychotic disorders also, like most of the things I deal with is anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Like probably 98% anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression. Mm -hmm. I've had delusional disorder. I've had a schizophrenic, one borderline, never a narcissist, never. Mm -hmm. So those, like, I can, on one hand, the personality disorders I've encountered, you just, you, you really just don't encounter them very much. So, in, so the, the answer I'm giving you is whether it's narcissism or any other personality disorder, those are rare. And we are very hesitant as therapists to, to give that diagnosis. At least I would say the good therapists are. You're very hesitant to give a personality disorder, to, you know, because you really have to be careful when you do right, that. Right. Right. And with gaslighting, I think we 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 all can do that now and then. Like I think we all, if if we're if we're prideful, mm -hmm. or we're trying to dodge responsibility, or trying to kind of backpedal with what we said, is is really just not acknowledging that you are creating a situation that this person is responding to. That's that's the essence of it. Right. I so would it be safe to say? I'm just thinking about through this, gaslighting is something that more people do than think they do. And narcissism yes. is something that less people have experienced than think they have experienced. Did you say Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I feel like people have run into or had relationships with people who exhibit narcissistic behaviors or do things that people who have narcissism are known for without being the full blown like what you're talking about. In other words, but but that's almost like it's just a more extreme way of saying somebody who's extremely self-centered, manipulative, uh, abuse, emotionally abusive, all that kind of stuff. It's just easier to call that narcissism, right? 
I mean, how do you see people misusing yeah. the term, I guess, is what I want to say. And what would you say what instead? I, what I usually don't hear is the kind of push-pull of narcissism. Like usually a narcissist, there's a push-pull kind of dynamic within them where on one hand, there's this grandiosity, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, there's an incredible insecurity. Mm -hmm. So usually you have those two kind of, they seem like polarities, right? But I can't stress enough that when you experience it or any genuine mental disorder, when I go back to the analogy of being in a hospital and like 90% of the people not needing to be there and that 10%, okay, it, 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 there is a sense in which you can't really miss it, you know, and it, you, you won't forget it when you encounter it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was joking about I, I kind of joked about Trump. I mean, I don't think he is. I don't like in <laughs> other words, typically, typically with a mental disorder, you, you're going to be some you're going to be dysfunctional. Right. Like you're, you're not going to really be able to just kind of go throughout life and maintain relationships and and maintain a job and achieve goals like genuine narcissism is going to be a significant impediment in the person's life. And that you and now what makes it a personality disorder is that you're going to be able to trace it across all kinds of like there's going to be a general consensus that, mm -hmm. yeah, this person, we are seeing these traits. Now, here's the thing about it is most of the time when they're going to when people describe the traits, they won't actually think narcissism. Interestingly enough, like most of the time when they experience a narcissist, that's not going to be the first thing that comes to their mind. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the, the first thing that will come to your mind is that kind of polarity that you're experiencing where. It's like this person needs to be exalted, right? But they don't believe the exaltation when it happens. That's kind of, that's one way, that's at least how I think about it, right? But it's mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar, like mm -hmm. the way he was. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, but you see how extreme Nebuchadnezzar is. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Like you can't, you, you can't yeah. really miss a Nebuchadnezzar. Right. You, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's really pretty, pretty extreme. Yeah. That would be, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, well, I think that, it makes sense. I'm what I'm trying to make sense of is I run into because I deal predominantly with single adults and most single adults who I have interaction with are are divorced. Um, they've they and a high number of them are by their own uh, testimony divorced from a narcissist, and so I. I find myself wondering, is God putting me in the path of a lot of people who have experienced this small number of narcissistic relationships? Or are they or is that term being used broader in a public meaning than it actually is in the literature, in the actual definition? I feel like it's probably the latter. I feel like yeah. people are have had run ins with people who have. I don't know. I don't know if there's a spectrum of like you can be like Nebuchadnezzar level narcissist and then you can be down here functional. But narcissistic behavior is your normal reality. And I don't know enough to know the difference or what I, I yeah. my concern is anytime things get overused in the public and terms start to get remodeled, whether it's the term fundamentalist which was done in the uh, 19th century or 20th and got rebranded. Now fundamentalist means a closed minded instead of somebody just who adheres to the basics of the faith, whether it's the term woke uh, woke used to just mean somebody who's aware of systemic injustices and, and has a critical eye to a system. Now it's 
whatever is not right wing is automatically considered woke. So that term's become meaningless. C.S. Lewis talked right. about it with the term gentleman, how gentlemen yes. used to have an actual meaning and then it later. So it's it, words change. That's how the language works. So I guess that's what I'm always looking for is is precision as much as possible and ferreting out. Is yeah. this being used in the popular way or is this being used in the actual definition professional manner? And I, yeah, when it, it came to narcissism, I just I don't know. It's popular. So let's use OCD. Like that's another example. Okay. People say, oh, I'm so OCD. Mm -hmm. Okay. Real OCD is is very unpleasant for the one who it's a literal compulsive thought that leads to a, a ritual that has to be performed that the person doesn't want to perform. Right. Right. It's not pleasant. So right, it's right, right. as we don't like it when people say we're so, oh I'm so OCD because the real disorder is actually it it, it it dishonors the real disorder. Right, right, right. The spectrum that you're talking about is actually a good way to think about it. All of us experience anxiety, but not all of us have anxiety disorder. All of us right. experience depression. So that means, James Michael, that if you catch any of us on a bad day, all of us could be a narcissist. If you yeah. catch us on a bad day, right? So in that sense, that's what I'm talking about. Like yeah. using the what distinguishes personality disorders is the pervasiveness of it, right? Mm -hmm. So, so basically, you you're right. And sometimes, even as therapists, we have to say unspecified personality disorder or other personality disorder because there's some of the criteria, but it doesn't completely fit it. Yeah. But that's the thing. Most of the time, when I hear people, because I, I hear the same thing, most people that come to me, they they've divorced from a narcissist. And I'm usually I, I'll say, did they go to a therapist and were they diagnosed with that? No, I just read it on Wikipedia and that's what they were. It's usually <laughs> right, like that. Right, right, right. right. I've, 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 I've never heard anybody say that this person was diagnosed, right? Yeah. And that's the problem. Like you go and you read the criteria online, right? It's kind of like, you know, you've watched those Bugs Bunny cartoons and they'll, the people will read off these symptoms and all of a sudden Bugs Bunny has the symptoms <laughs> that they're reading off. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's, it's kind of like that. Like basically... Yeah. It is a spectrum. All of us at some point have probably had narcissistic tendencies. All of us have probably gaslighted. Mm -hmm. All of us have, you know, I mean, we all of us have like, I, you know, I like to start things right on the time. And if I don't, I feel kind of itchy. Right. Mm -hmm. That could be if you catch me on a certain day, you might think I'm obsessing over it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a spec. It is a spectrum. And all of us experience the spectrum on some level. Yeah. The key is when the spectrum causes impairment and distress, right, in, mm -hmm. in your personality, in your relationships, in your vocation to such an extent that it hinders function. So it's like all of us can catch a cold every now and then and then we get over it. So all of us, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't stress enough. You, if you catch us at certain times and you went to a therapist, you would probably fit the diagnosis. Yeah. If well, that's during that that's what sin yeah. sin is like all of the you know it's just when if you if you fall into sin if you commit sin if you are not walking with the lord in this moment yeah you're going to be pretty terrible yeah. and that's probably has a disorder somewhere named after it because somebody is yeah. consistently that <laughs> across the yes. board <laughs> yeah it's yeah. I, I, it's helpful because we are in such a moment in our culture where especially narcissism is is a buzzword that you my concern again is with people knowing what they're up against or knowing what they've come out of or knowing what to look out for and and in the dating world with with adults dating 
um, everybody is the textbook example, like in your mind, in people's minds, they're the, te oh, this person didn't write me back when I wanted to, they're total narcissist. You know, this person texted me twice in five minutes. Oh, they're OCD. They like, we just, we yeah, exactly. popularize yeah. these things that are re really serious conditions. And, and I think people should be aware of them and, and, and avoid them obviously, but also maybe be mindful of how we're using those terms. And yeah, I don't know. And it, and it's, it's outside of my wheelhouse. So that's why I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah. I think what you're saying is important. Like diagnosing is very, is a very serious process and you want to be, and it takes a while to do it. Now the problem is insurance companies wants us to kind of do it in the first session. Mm. So you usually have to do some type of diagnosis, but you're not, you're not, you're not sure in the first session typically right. right so it usually takes a while to in encounter the person right because this is this is going to impact people's lives man like you you know you if you put this label on this person yeah. you know yeah. sometimes the label can be can be uh healing because they finally know what's going on with them once they finally understand because I, I i dealt with that with agoraphobia like there was a, a guy that he had dealt with anxiety for years and then I I got to know him and I'm listening to him. And I'm just like, have you ever heard of agoraphobia? He's like, no. It's like, has no one, all of these therapists that you've been to, no one has ever considered that with you. No one had ever considered it. Hmm. Right. I was like, he was, it was like blaring. To, and so when I zeroed in on that, hmm. and it, it brought this relief to him because he knew what was going on with him. Hmm. And we, he came out of it. Like we, we went through the, the the interventions designed for that. But that's what I'm talking about. Like basically, if you're not careful, if a therapist isn't careful and they just mm -hmm. narcissist, right? Yeah. So now you start to interact with this person like they're a narcissist, right? Which is very damaging because they may not be, right? Mm -hmm. Now they've got this label on them. And again, it's a personality disorder. That's the problem. Like that's what I'm saying. It's like personality disorders are pretty... All of them are serious. I don't don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying the person you have certain disorders that, that are just very hard to treat. Right. Right. Yeah, and yeah. that is one. Right. So you want to be really, really careful to not put this label on someone that now you filter how you interact with them based on that. Even as a therapist, I'm not trying to do that. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, we've got about 15 minutes ish right under that. So I want to hit any topics that you want to put out there or want to cover particularly for like the single adult community um, when they're navigating entering into relationships. That's the biggest questions or comments or uh, posts that people make in, in the singles group that I run the grownups table is there's a lot of just how can I be better at this finding a solid relationship, making a relationship work, uh, not getting blown off, uh, not getting rejected. I mean, there's every, every question you can imagine, but there's not a lot of answers that people get um, that are substantial. They're kind of all generic. And so I wanted to give you a chance. If you have anything, like if you could talk to a, a group of, you know, a couple thousand single Christian adults, what do they need to know to not go into these dangers, not hit these pitfalls that you see regularly? So I did an entire seminar and I called it the one and it was on how to find the one. That was what the seminar was about, like mm. how to do it. Right. And so I'm going to give you the basic skeleton 
it, I usually use four words to help when people come to me for that. Okay. So it's become, know, go, and show. Become, know, go, show. Remember those four words. Okay. So the first step is to become the one, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of focusing on finding the one, focus on becoming the one. Now, here's the beautiful thing about that. What does that mean? It means that you want to think about how you are. And, and, and a, there's a lot of books that I get. So it's like whenever I'm talking, I'm pulling from a whole bunch of different books. Same, same so here. I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. So this is from, you know, Camille, Virginia, offline dating method. How, you know, a man, man's got to a woman, you know, a lot of books. All right. So this concept means that whenever you talk to anyone, you want to have the same script and the same tone. That means think about talking to your best friend, right? So however you are with your best friend, you just want to be like that with absolutely positively everybody, mm-hmm. right? And you take that mindset into dating, right? So the reason for that is because you're, you're basically looking for your person and thus a match, right? Again, agreement. But you're not going to find that unless you are acting this way with everybody. So one of the key ways that you can become really the one for someone, like if you think about sense of humor, for example. All right. So if you think about the kind of jokes you tell with your best friend, you tell those jokes with everybody. And that's how you kind of fish for your people. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you're, you're trying to go out on a date, you tell this joke and they just kind of look at you. OK, just not one of your people. Your people are going to think you should take your show on the road. They're going to think you're just one of the most hilarious people they've ever right, met. Right. Right? That's what you're looking for. But I cannot stress enough you don't need to focus on lines. You don't need to focus on techniques. You don't need to focus on any of that. You need to focus on who you are at your core and showing up like that everywhere. Mm. Right. So the analogy is the way you show up with your best friend, because according to John Gottman, the way that you know you have found the one is, is you feel like you're enough or they, they're enough. Mm. I mean, smart enough, funny enough, attractive enough, enough, mm. that sense of enoughness. Right. Well, take that back to scripture, naked and not ashamed, mm-hmm. right? So basically with the, the become phase is becoming naked and not ashamed. If you're an introvert, go to parties like an introvert goes, you know, just mm-hmm. you're, you're, you really want kind of like this, the way that therapists think about it, when we go through training, we, we, at least from systems theories that I've studied, we're not focusing on using skills. We're focusing on skillfully being, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to skillfully be in a relationship with you, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm modeling. I'm showing up. So that's becoming the one for someone. The next is no. Remember, I said become and no. So you have to think, OK, what do I need? And a key word need in, in order to feel as intimately connected as humanly possible with another person. What do I need? You can think about that from an attachment theory perspective, love language perspective. But you really want to get to the be as vulnerable with yourself as, OK, what do I need for this? Now, once you know that you want to go where that person will most likely be, right? No, become, go. Now that involves two principles, proximity, meaning there's an attraction principle that basically says that typically you're going to find your person where you're at in the grocery store. Like my brother found his wife, just wherever you are, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they have to be there. Right. But also you want to find, okay, if, if you're a dog person, you know, your life revolves around dogs and most likely you need a dog person. And where are you going to find that person? Dog store, dog park, etc. So you want to go where that person most likely would be. And then you want to show that person to a designated truth teller, because there's research that shows that there's a 75% chance 
that your designated truth tellers will be able to say spot on, actually 80%, 85%, that they will have an 85% chance of being more accurate than you are mm. in terms of seeing that enoughness that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's research that shows that that total strangers armed with information that I'm giving, they have a 75% chance of just looking at you and saying, yeah, you guys are good for each other, right? So like, you know, your mom, your best friend, you know, your therapist, like these are designated truth tellers. Mm-hmm. So become, know, go and show are the four things that I give people in terms of actually a blueprint for finding the one for them. And I expound mm-hmm. on that, right? But what I just said is actually enough. Like basically if you, all now these four things assume intentionality, right? Right. right? They assume awareness. They assume that this is not going to just happen, right? Any more than finding a job will just happen. Like, yeah, I tell people to think about it like that. Nobody ever says, well, I guess it's God's will for me to be homeless. You know, when the, when the time is <laughs> right, you know, I'll get groceries. Right. <laughs> right? Nobody ever does that. So it's like it. But this goes back to attachment theory, James Michael. Mm. Typically, before I can do this or before I can focus on intentionality, I have to say, is this a need that you have? Do you do you feel like God is saying to you, it is not good for you to be alone? And most of the time they 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 hesitate, whatever. It's like, just be straight up. Like, do you do you want to be alone? Do you think you would be okay? Once they finally say, No, no, I'm not okay, then we can start. Yeah. But usually until I can get them to say that, because most of the people are struggling with they should feel like they're okay. You should be mm-hmm. okay by yourself. You should be, you know. And yeah. and sometimes you know, unfortunately, like singles ministries kind of put that in people's heads where they oh, you, all you the shouldn't. Time. Want, yeah. yeah you be know. content. And we be have content to, in your singleness. Be content in your yeah, season. Just, yeah, just date Jesus. Date Jesus and be content <laughs> yeah. in your, you know, and just, and, and you know, they come to me struggling with that. That's like, I, am I, am I a bad Christian because I don't want to just date Jesus? It's like, was Adam bad when, when God said it wasn't good for him to be alone? I mean, Adam had God. And God said that, right? So I think step one I usually give people is embrace the need for this first and foremost. Embrace it as a need according to attachment theory, according to scripture. Because it's a need, just like when you need a job, you have to intentionally get that need met, right? Mm -hmm. Once you put those two things in place, become, know, go, and show. Those are the four things. And I I did an entire seminar on that. Like It took me like four hours to go through all of this. Yeah, But I'm just giving the skeleton on it. Well, that's good. No, because maybe in the future <clears throat> we can talk about doing something collaborative and um, getting that information to people, particularly to like the Grown Up Stable group or uh, viewers of this channel or something. But because it is stuff that it's stuff that <clears throat> churches either don't care to teach because they view it as that's peripheral to our job. You know, we're saving souls, we're feeding hungry people, we're sending missionaries, like we're doing church. So they don't look at developing relational emotional health particularly among adults who are not married and looking to marry or um they they want to do it but they just don't know how and so they're like well let's let's hire this person as a singles pastor that's been married for 35 years and and just have them teach studies of song of solomon or like i don't know i mean they're doing something i give them credit they're doing something but but there's not a real I don't know. There's yeah, it's needed. It's needed. And hopefully people watching at least are starting to realize there's nothing unspiritual about therapy, about relational EQ, you know, emotional, emotional, whatever EQ stands for (laughs) the the emotional version of IQ. Um, All of this stuff is needed. 
and and it's really important. So I I want to have you back on for sure. Maybe we'll get some um, viewer questions. We can do this again. Yes. And because I know you're like me, you love doing Q and A and and can talk yes. off the cuff on something if you're passionate about it. Yes. So, yes. Uh, and and Olatunde, next time we come, I know people are going to want to know where did the name Olatunde come from, because he doesn't talk with a Nigerian accent, but he exactly. has a Nigerian name. What's up with that? So that will be for a future episode when Olatunde is back. We don't want to give it all away at one time. Um, man, it's always good to see you, my friend, and I good so appreciate you coming on. Where can people either reach you or connect with you for for professional? therapy services or just to follow if you're if you're on social media or if you're doing blogging or how's the best way for them to to find you so i'm a therapist at 180 counseling 180 counseling and you'll find my bio now of course you see my tap now but when you when you when you look me up it's going to be every time you see me it's going to be covered <laughs> up <laughs> but basically when you go online you go to 180 counseling mm -hmm. i'm at the carrie morrisville office and i do teletherapy for anybody that's in north carolina Right. Okay. So that's the that's the main way. And I do I have some blogs that's my, my therapy blogs are on that site. So I think I get a lot of clients who actually come to me because they've read those blogs. Mm -hmm. So I think those blogs are like a good source of information on relationships because I try to write in such a way that I mean my job as a therapist is to make it so that I work myself out of a job. Like I don't want people to need me or to need right, therapy. Right, right. But I try to give information to such an extent that you have a network where you don't even need to see me. But yeah. I think that's a good place to start. Okay. Well, I'll put links in the description of this video when we get it posted up. And I'll encourage people to check out Altuna's writings. Um, he's he's a trusted friend. I've known him. He probably, there's I count on five, uh, one hand the number of people who probably know me uh, as good as anybody in this world. And he is uh, among those. So yeah. I'm so glad that you could be here on the channel and we're going to have you back, man. So I appreciate it, brother. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Olatunde. We're going to have him back. We're going to do some Q&A. If anything that he said in the video resonates with you or didn't sit well with you, if you disagreed, if you have questions about, if you'd like to know more on, leave those in the comments below. Let us know what you would like us to talk about next time he stops by the dojo. Thanks for watching. Take care and we'll see you back here next time at Disciple Dojo. Mm -hmm.